think back on Christmas morning. Surrounded by stockings, lights, boxes with wrapping paper. We all remember the excitement of wondering what's in those boxes. Or perhaps you are the one giving the gift and thought, I can't wait for them to see what's inside. There may be different memories and traditions you might have, but many Christmas mornings have something to share. Christmas time is known for giving and receiving gifts, but perhaps there's more to the gifts that we see. We know what gifts are, yet that still leaves the question, what does a gift mean? Christmas question for you this morning. What was the very first Christmas gift you can remember receiving? And maybe not the favorite, but what was the very first gift you can remember receiving, you received at Christmas time? Some of you have to think back a short amount of time. Some of us have to think back a long time. Do you have it in mind right now, what that was? I'll tell you what mine was. I was probably seven or eight, and I was given by my parents a football helmet and shoulder pads. And uh, it stuck in my mind because my future was I was going to be the next Jim Brown. Now, if you're not a football fan, you would not know this, but Jim Brown played for the Cleveland Browns. He was the best running back in football. Get this, he was 230 pounds of steel. He was just bigger, bigger than some of the defensive linemen back in that era. He He was the best. In fact, some would say today the best of all time at running back. And I was the next Jim Brown. And so getting the helmet and shoulder pads just propelled me down the journey. Now, somewhere around 12 or 13, uh, after being broken like a toothpick a couple of times, I realized that that was not my destiny. But that, that gift has stuck in my mind. It's my very first memory. I know I was given gifts from the time I was less than a year old, but my first memory is of that gift of a helmet and shoulder pads. Most of you know, although you may not think of it in these terms, is that the very first Christmas gifts were actually given to Jesus. Very first gifts were given to him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this entire month. And so I'll read for you where this begins. And a lot of you would be familiar with what this says. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So these are, it says that wise men, the actual word used in Greek is magi or a form of magi. So, so they would have been, because there were a number of people throughout the known world known as magi, they would have likely been people that were knowledgeable in religion and in astrology and some of them in magic. They would have been advisors to kings, advisors to royalty. Sometimes they are referred to as kings themselves, although that's not really likely Uh, They weren't referred to as kings until the 3rd century A.D. And they were referred to as kings because some Christ followers read the Old Testament, Psalm 72.10 in particular, and and thought, well, there's a prophecy in that about Jesus. And so the psalm that they would read, Psalm 72.10, said, The western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. And so they thought, well, these magi, they must have been kings. But... Uh, there's nothing in the 
prophecy from Psalms about this being the newborn Messiah and all. So uh, likely not kings, but, but a good term for them, wise men. They were wise men that came. They, they come to Jerusalem. They say they've come to see to find the newborn king of the Jews. And so the existing king of the Jews, Herod, hears that news, and he's really deeply disturbed. He wants to hold his crown for a long time, which he actually would not do. But he was deeply disturbed. He has an audience with these magi from the east and, and has some discussion with them. The audience, the time with him ends, and they depart. So I'll pick up in verse 9. After the interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. First Christmas gift mentioned is that of gold. Gold would be a gift that would be fit for a king. <laughs> gold then and now represents uh, power and riches. And at that time, if you were in a kingdom, then most certainly the one with the most gold would be the king. And so very appropriately, it would be a gift for a king. And they have said that they have come to find the newborn king of the Jews. They've come to find the newborn king of the Jews. So we are, we're just over a page into the New Testament and there's this declaration that Jesus is king. Now, have any of you ever lived in a kingdom? Uh, maybe some of you have with a real king. Uh, I haven't, and maybe no one in the room has. So we probably don't know much about ancient kingdoms. The only royalty that I know much about, and actually it's very little. Uh, some of you that follow this stuff would be embarrassed at how little I know. But there's a royal family in England. I know that. I know that much, and I know that there's not been a king for a long time. I looked it up. Since 1952, no king. And I know enough to realize that they're just a ceremonial royalty. They actually don't have any ruling power. But I know this in ancient kingdoms. In ancient kingdoms, the kings had one thing in common among them. They had all power. That was the common denominator. You couldn't determine just because they were king. You couldn't say that they all had a certain character, all had certain values, all saw their um, people in their kingdom a certain way. All treated the people in their kingdom a certain way. You couldn't say they all had the same heart, but you could say this. Ancient kingdoms, you could say they all had all power. They had all power and all authority. It's the biggest weakness of a kingdom. Hey, can you imagine in the U.S. if, if, if we went to the government of a king and one person actually had all power? All power. Every single human being is flawed, aren't they? The history of most kings is that there were times, some, some cases, it was a few times in the king's life he would put himself above his subjects. Many kings, he would put himself above his subjects all the time. The, the best king of biblical history portrayed is David. And even David, there were people that lost their lives because he wanted to protect his reputation the best of kings are flawed, aren't they? The best of kings are badly flawed. We live in this democracy, and um, most of us would agree it doesn't always work like it's supposed to, and this seems to be a time that that's the case right now, but, but I would not trade our democracy to live in 
in the ancient kingdom world to be underneath a king that was flawed. We, we don't want to, to put our lives in the, under the power of a person, do we? we? We don't want anyone to have absolute control of our lives. But this is the declaration of Scripture. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ has all power. Matthew 2, which we've just read, the New Testament has just begun, and the wise men say we've come to find the newborn king of the Jews. The, the gospel of Matthew, the entire breadth of it, it's only 28 chapters, 51 times. It references the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's a book about, about a kingdom and a king. The entire book is. You can't get very far before you hit the next occasion. It talks about this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of Matthew ends with chapter 28, verse 18. It says, Jesus came to them, meaning his disciples, and said, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. All power. He said, I, I am the king. That's just reality. You look at how his early followers began to live out life following him. There's this very insightful uh, passage just kind of thrown in in Acts 17. It's Paul and Silas are, are followers of Jesus. They're in the city of Thessalonica. It's current day Greece. And, and they're just talking about what they found about Jesus and who he is and how they follow him. And there's some opposition that comes against them and the other Christ followers that are there. And the opposition uh, rounds some of them up and there's this mob around them. And this is, this is the accusation made against followers of Jesus. It says, they are guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. <laughs> like the early followers of Jesus, they got it. Uh, he is king. He is king. He does have all power. And then near the very end of the New Testament, Revelation 19, verse 16, near the very end, speaking of Jesus, it says, on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So there's this profound reality. Let it grab a hold of you today. Jesus is king. Jesus has all power. So it presses the question, what kind of king is he? Every human king, I've told you how I feel about every human king. I, I don't want my life under the power of a human king. What kind of king is Jesus? He is perfect and unlimited in power. He has all power, and even the most powerful human kings could not really say that. Has any human king had power over disease and illness? Has any human king had power over death or power over natural disasters? Has any king had that kind of power? Jesus has all power, perfect and unlimited in power in every single way. We sing a song. We say he has no rival. He has no equal. And what a powerful name, the name of Jesus Christ, my king. He has all power, perfect and unlimited in power. He also is perfect and unlimited in righteousness, which means goodness. In our terms, it means that he is perfect and unlimited in always doing complete goodness, never doing that which is bad. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, speaking about Jesus, it says, the baby to be born will be holy. He'll be holy. I mean, there'll be no flaw, no fault, no sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, after Jesus spent his time on the planet, referring to him as the high priest, it says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 
So about Jesus, he's, he's perfect and unlimited in righteousness. In other words, never sinning. And sin is simply, this is very important to understand, sin is simply the, the tag God puts on anything that causes harm. It's simply the tag God puts on anything that causes harm. And Jesus is without sin and will always be. He never has nor never will do anything that will cause harm. Perfect and unlimited in righteousness. He is perfect and unlimited in knowledge. Colossians 2.3 says, In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All knowledge. Would it be enough if he had all power and he was all good, but he didn't know everything? Could he lead you perfectly? But he knows everything. Everything about you. He, made you, he knows exactly how you're wired, exactly how you'll best thrive. He knows everything about the circumstances around you, the world around you. He knows tomorrow. He won't dictate tomorrow only partially as he chooses. He lets you and I and the people on the planet make a lot of choices, but he knows tomorrow. Which doesn't that suggest if he has all power and all righteousness and he, has, he knows everything, that's, that's a huge stride down the path of saying, would you lead me? But that's not enough, though. But that same passage, Colossians 2, 3, says he is perfect and unlimited in wisdom. Perfect and unlimited in wisdom. In other words, knowledge is simply knowing things, isn't it? But have you ever been aware of someone that knows a lot of stuff but doesn't know what to do with it? (laughs) Makes a lot of bad choices? Don't elbow anybody near you or anything like that right now. But knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge. And the Bible claims that Jesus is perfect and unlimited in wisdom. He has all the treasures of wisdom. But if he's all-powerful and all-righteous and has all knowledge and all wisdom, that's not enough. There's one. This is the linchpin. This is the one that seals the deal. It should seal the deal. He is perfect and unlimited in love for you. He is perfect and unlimited in love for you. And he doesn't just say that. John 15, 13, this is what he would say. He would say, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And within 12 hours, he did that. He is perfect and unlimited in love for you. And and love, the definition of love is to want and do what is best for someone. That's what love is. And to want and do what's best for someone Jesus Christ, perfect, unlimited in love for you, will always want and do what's best for you. All power, all righteousness, all knowledge, all wisdom, perfect in love for you. My, my prayer for, for you and for me this whole week is actually a prayer that Paul prayed for the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, back 2,000 years ago. It's found in Ephesians 1. 19 to 23. This has been my fervent prayer for you and for me this week. Paul would write, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. This is, this is the power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. I've been pondering. I've, I've stood at the open casket caskets of some I've loved with my whole heart. And, and he's saying, this is the power that can breathe life into the dead. 
This is the power that, that he has. This is the power he has. And then it goes on, begins to speak about Christ's power then. Now he, referring to Christ, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Do you know who the church is? Every single person that's a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. Do you know what this says? God has made him powerful over everything for all time for the benefit of the church. He pours out his power for the benefit of you if you're a follower of Jesus. And the church is his body. It's made full and complete by this Christ who fills things everywhere with himself. He has all power and he uses that power on your behalf. Can I illustrate what it looks like today in our time today? The last three days. These are things I've heard or been reminded of the last three days. David Miller is our compassion pastor. This past week he was at a hospital beside the bed of someone who in all likelihood has very little time left on the planet. And had some private time with this individual and the person's been a follower of Jesus for a long, long time. But the person began to open up and say, I want to, I want to tell you this. I, I even hate to speak it, but, but I have so much fear now. And I, I am really questioning whether I've ever really trusted Christ if I experienced so much fear. And David simply said to this person, said if, because <laughs> he, he knew this person was a follower of Jesus and said, if there was indeed a day you authentically surrendered your life to Jesus, then from that day forward, even, even in your ups and downs of following him well and following him badly, even in your good days and your sinful days, even in all those, then, then you belong to him now and forever. Now your destiny is heaven. And David said when he said it, and those are simply words. Uh, I just said the words, did any of you get chills? No. <laughs> One of you, when David said those words, he said he looked at this person and they completely transformed before his eyes. I mean, the complete picture of peace and confidence and joy and radiance. Going to live any longer? No. (laughs) Illness cured? No. But complete transformation. The power of Jesus took those words of truth and changed that person from the inside out. That's the power of Jesus at work today. That's the power of Jesus on your behalf, on our behalf. I met with a man this week, and I've known him for a while, and he and his wife have been married for a decade, and a good part of their marriage has been very hard, very difficult, and and marriage is that, but there's some circumstances in their life, not of their doing, that have made their marriage even much more difficult. And he would candidly say that there have been a number of times that he and his wife both thought the marriage just wouldn't last. just very difficult. But as we were talking this week, and he was describing where they are and what they're doing and how they're living as this couple, as this married couple now, there were such powerful threads of health in their marriage. made such clarity, and you could see, even though, yes, there's still hard days, and yes, there were days of arguments, and yes, there were days of frustrations, you could see these strong, strong cords 
of faith. And you could see this, this direction that they had taken, and it was all based upon this. They both together had begun to look to Jesus in their marriage. They began to bring Jesus into every part of it. As I was listening, I thought, they're they are so far down the road. I thought they were farther down the road at 10 years than Marie and I were. And as I was listening to him talk, I could see the power of Jesus at work in their marriage. To take a marriage that in, in all rightfulness, if you, just, if you put their circumstances seven years ago before the world, wouldn't last, wouldn't last. It's going to, it's going to. The power of Jesus on our behalf. And then the last three days I saw, I saw a, a mother who 11 years ago had one of her children had broken the law. And it was in the legal system trial and the whole nine yards taking place. And within the very same week that, that they began that legal process, the intensity of the legal process, within the very same week, she met two other mothers from this church by pure chance, apart from God, who also at the very same time ha- also had kids in the same legal process, you know, different problems, different breaking of the law, but they were involved as well. And then there was a slight acquaintance that this mother knew of another mom who the very same week, one of her children also began this intense legal process. And so there were four of these moms and they all were experiencing the same thing, the sense of, of, I will never know joy again, especially if there's a conviction and there's prison, I'll never experience joy again. What will be the future of my child? But they began to pray together, together and ask Jesus to step into the midst of it. And they got great encouragement and great hope. Great clarity that, that he was in the midst of it reaching into their kids, their prodigal kids' lives. And a few months into it, they began to see the spillover into some of the kids' lives uh, of the beginnings of an open heart, the beginnings of a heart that would begin to change. And they very tentatively thought there are probably other moms that are or will go through the same thing. And so very humbly, they they opened the doors to what they began to call hope and healing 11 years ago. And now 11 years have passed, and there have been so many moms who have come, so many prodigal sons and daughters that, that have been uh, deeply prayed for and deeply loved. There have been over, not all of them ended up in prison, but over 20 of the prodigal sons and daughters have been incarcerated, some for a long time. The, the charges have been... Um, drugs, assault, even murder. In fact, they've had a mom come from as far as Austin uh, to come for the power of what Christ is doing here. And so of the 20 plus that have been incarcerated, almost every single one has authentically trusted Jesus. Almost every single one. And I thought about that. I thought, well, that's better than we're doing. Maybe we should send all of our sons and daughters to prison because that's a pretty good ratio. But I know it it would not likely have happened without these moms deeply praying and asking Christ to transform them and transform their kids. So I know now of of those 20 plus, I don't know all of them, but I I know know of a couple that in churches in the greater Houston area that are now out of prison having a profound, visible ministry for the kingdom of God, altering so many lives now. And I know one of them, this was uh, the first part of this I actually told years ago. One of them was in prison for quite some time and 
trusted Christ somewhere along the journey of that with all the moms praying. And his life began to deeply change, and he desired for others to know Christ as well. And he didn't have a big audience to go out except for the other prisoners and the prison guards. And so he tried to tell them about Jesus, and he tried to let them see his life. It was changing. And there was one guard that was assigned to looking over the area he was in where he was doing work. And so he tried to tell his guard about Jesus. And the guard was a, he was a good guy, but the guard wasn't interested. The guard was very resistant for a long time. And, but there was one night, though, that, that once again this prodigal son was telling the guard about Jesus who he had found and who had begun deep change in him. And that given night, the guard authentically trusted his life to Jesus. And only God knew that that very week that prison guard would die in an automobile accident just a couple of days later. And, and I found myself thinking, um, prodigal son, uh, what kind of future does someone like that have? What will their life end up being? And yet Jesus intersected it. And this became like the beacon of Christ. It was the one God used to change his life forever. When I told that story the first time, I didn't even know the name of the guard. And I certainly didn't know that there was a family here that rarely attended here, but they were here that day. And because this guard had trusted Christ and worked in night shifts and died a couple days later, this guard had never had a chance to tell his family he trusted Christ. And that family was here that day. I told that. That family came up at the end of the service, tears in their eyes, tears of joy, and said, now we know. Man, our son's in heaven. We know, we know, we know. Why? There is a king. His name is Jesus. He has all power. He has all power. And he uses his power to draw people to him in faith and then to pour out his love upon them. That's how he uses his power. That's how he uses his power. Gold. What an appropriate gift to be the first one listed. Fit for a king. The beautiful irony is that it was given to Jesus at the one time in history that he willingly gave up all of his power to enter this planet on our behalf to rescue us. There is a king. His name is Jesus. We often sing, he has no rivals. He has no equals. What a powerful name, the name of Jesus Christ, my king. What should you do about that? And th- this is reality. This is reality. He is king. If you haven't done so, then why would you not place yourself in his kingdom? He won't force you to. He invites you to. Why would you not place yourself under the kingdom of the one who's king? Righteous, all knowledge, all wisdom, and infinite love for you. Why would you not do that? Jesus speaks of this, Matthew seven thirteen and 14. He says, you you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. The road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So you can only enter God's kingdom through the narrow gate. And then in John 10, 9 and 10, he says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. 
They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. He says, I am the gate. You enter this kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, by saying, would you forgive my sins and lead my life? Would you forgive my sins and lead my life? Say, authentically, I'm, I'm surrendering leadership to you. you. You now become my king. I willingly surrender leadership to you. You are, my, you are my chosen king. I want to be in your kingdom. And the moment you pray that, you're, you're in his kingdom. You're in his kingdom. What does it mean for those of us that have been living in his kingdom for a long time? I think it means a reminder, because of how, how good he is, to reflect and be sure we're consistently putting everything under his kingship, everything under his kingship. In Matthew 13, 44, he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. So he's saying that this kingdom is worth everything. If you lost everything, it's worth the kingdom. And if it's, if it's worth losing everything, why wouldn't we take everything we have everything we have and put it before him and say, you're king over this. Maybe for us to confess, I've been holding on to this one. I'm not giving you leadership. I'm not giving you kingship. But say, because of who you are, who you are, I'm putting everything, I'm putting this under you as king. When we do that in deep dependence upon him, there's, there's peace that passes understanding. So I would ask you, what do you fear? What do you fear? Do you fear illness? Do you fear death? Do you fear joblessness or poverty? Or maybe these days, even nuclear holocaust. What do you fear? And here's the truth, and we sing this. He has no rival. He has no equal. What a powerful name, like the name of Jesus Christ, my king. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is the perfect king. He is king. I hope, as I pray in a moment, those of you that have not been, you've never entered his kingdom, I hope that you will now. I hope you'll have your own silent prayer to him to say, Jesus, I recognize you're king. You're the perfect king. I want my life under you as king. Forgive me and lead me. I I hope there'll be some of you that would do that. If you do, when service is over, find someone and tell them. Find the prayer team and tell them. Let them pray with joy with you this morning. And, and then as I pray, I hope that you'll be reflecting and saying, because of, because of who he is, why would I not examine everything? Make sure everything is open palm, saying, this is yours. You're king of everything. Father in heaven, this is such good news Every human king is so flawed, but Jesus has no flaws. How, how good that our life could be under such a king. How good that our life doesn't have to be under our own kingship, our own flawed kingship. How good to know that, that Jesus knows better and best for our good, and he will guide to that and lead to that, provide for that, knowing we'll be in his kingdom forever, someday his perfect kingdom of heaven and forever. Father, I pray for the ones, I pray right now for the ones who, until this day, have not said, Jesus, be my king. 
forgive my sins, lead my life, I surrender to you. I pray for them. I pray they would in faith do that now. And their new, this new life would begin for them. And the change and transformation would begin under Jesus' kingship. And the rest of us, Father, may we be in awe of who Jesus is as king. May we be in awe and in deep gratitude that he has no rival. He has no equal. There is no more powerful name than the name of Jesus, our king. I pray this in his name. Amen.